0: This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts.
1: Dr. Sheena Mason, it's been a long time.
0: It's been too long, Kevin. I'm glad to spend time with you today.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's. I know you've been busy. Um, i I think you've been busier than I have. But we did plan to get together a few times, and and none of those worked out. But yeah, it, it'll be great to catch up today.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, so how you been?
0: Busy. <laughs> busy i can't even begin to say um how many projects i'm working on behind the scenes to advance my theory of racelessness um i think you saw i might, i hope i shared this with you that my book is coming out officially yeah. the release date is um july 15th so nice. that's exciting and,
1: and tell tell us a bit about that book
0: so theory of racelessness: a case for anti-racism is a scholarly text, and another way to think of that is it's a textbook. Uh, It's being published by Palgrave Macmillan, a scholarly press, and it's available on Amazon for pre-order, but essentially it lays out and defines what my theory of racistness is, and then it shows it in application. It shows it in application to um, both the interpretive and analytical work That happens in literary studies, particularly with African-American literature, and it shows it with uh, teaching. So there's a chapter on pedagogy to say this is just one example of a way in which we can teach African-American literature or even African diasporic literature in a way that doesn't unintentionally uphold racism and reify the idea and belief in race. So I'm really excited about the book. It's I put everything I have into that book. And um on the one hand, it wasn't super hard to write the book. And on the other hand, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do professionally. <laughs> um, I mean, just the sheer brain power, right, that goes into the thing. That was the culmination of over a decade of thinking and observing and living and researching. Um and so I think all of the books that come after this will be, you know, probably easier tackles because now the theory is clearer in my head. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But this is this is the introduction.
1: Nice. Yeah, it's it's um, if it's like I actually published a book also through Palgrave McMillan um, Education in the Marketplace. And um, if it's if it's kind of if your experience is like mine, it's it's easy to write in the sense that by the time you write it, you know what you you want to say but it's hard because writing it down tells you that there is a gap between the way you thought it was going to be in your head and actually putting it down on paper. It's like, you have to reduce a lot of what you want to say. You have to reframe a lot of what you want to say. It always sounds better in your head. And then you put it down on paper and you're like, crap. All right. Nope. I got to tweak this again.
0: You know, for me, the, I was just talking to Keisha, my wife about this yesterday. For me, it was, it was kind of a different, experience because i'm writing it my dissertation was what turned into the manuscript um and as i'm writing it i didn't realize all of what i actually did and was accomplishing on the one hand i was intentionally writing the theory it wasn't that was intentional i knew for a couple of years I, you know, that uh, that my dissertation was going to be my theory. It didn't yet have the name that came as, um, as I finished because it had a different name before. Um, but I knew it was going to be my theory. But then when I wrote the thing and how I was guided to write it and organize the chapters and stuff, I didn't realize... I didn't realize the complexity of it. And it's funny Mm. because my, one of my mentors Jacoby Carter at Howard university was telling me like, he said something about um, people could be, you know, less charitable and not um, not basically give you the, the due credit for creating this thing on on, basically on purpose. Right. Mm. But the funny part to me is I'm still figuring out what I did. Like I, I, I don't think I even have my mind around it. It doesn't help that people I converse with don't understand. They don't recognize the depth of what I'm saying. They just hear racelessness and they think racelessness. They don't recognize that it's a, an entire theoretical framework for mm. analyzing race and racism. And people don't just go around writing theories. We might convince ourselves that you know we have theories about such and such, but I wrote a theory that Any person can take and apply to whatever field, whatever industry, whatever discipline, etc. And so I feel like with each passing week, even I'm learning more about what I actually did in that book. And it's been coming through by Jacoby Carter telling me, you know, when I was working on revisions for the manuscript at some point, he said, you need to say the theory of racism is a theoretical it's a pedagogical and methodological framework for analyzing da, 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 and you have to have do you have to name your core tenets. and yeah. then i was like i guess i was being shy about saying that i made a theory right i, I was being shy about oh,
1: like, right, right. outright okay. saying
0: okay. what it is especially because at the end of my program i remember one of my professors said there are politics about calling something that you did a theory or something like that so that kind of made me unsure in some ways and hesitant. Yeah. And I wasn't wanting to like, think look like I think so highly of myself that I made a theory because I recognize that that doesn't happen for most people in their entire career. Right. Um,
1: well, academia is also really hierarchical too. Right. So yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to look like you're um, you know, theories are like reserved for the people who've been in the field for like 30 <laughs> for years. And, and they Yeah. yeah right, right. Right.
0: And I did it. You know, my dissertation was my theory. So I, I was being like really reserved. And then I had an aha moment with Dr. Carter and that I took that too, as he is somebody who's been in the field in a, you know for a long time, been in academia for a long time, I took that too as like permission in some ways. And yeah. then something unlocked in my brain because I was like, when he told me you need to write and name what your core tenets are. I realized a lot of the subjects of our podcast, my podcast on my channel Um, A lot of what I teach my students that the entire time I was operating from core tenets, but I wasn't naming these are the core tenets. So that was that was a pivotal moment for me. And then since that time, I've had people reviewing the book and writing endorsements and coming through conversations with them and what they write for their reviews has Mm. also been enlightening to me to see like, no, like I did something that means something to people here that. I I'm just coming around to to fully appreciating. Yeah, um, nice. So yeah, it's it's an awesome experience, but it's also very surreal for me because you know you dream about have you know having a book published, and um, I I guess I still am wondering what's happening in my life. You know, how did I get here? How did I create <laughs> the theory? I'm one of those people when I write something academic. I'm like, how did I come up with this? I, I, (laughs) it's a mystery to me in some ways. I I don't, I don't, maybe Uh, I don't give myself enough credit, but I'd rather that than think so highly of myself that my head is like this and nobody can deal with me.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I I saw your, your, your uh, podcast interview with, uh, with fair. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's, yeah, like you can see, kind of, it's it's it is a hard idea to get around because there's so many ideas of like color blindness or you know um, post racialism that are already out there,
0: mm-hmm. right? So
1: that so trying to differentiate kind of your idea from maybe the the less um, the 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 less uh, I guess. Um, I don't want to say less honest, but I'm probably going to have to say less honest kind of <laughs> views of, of uh, post-racialism that some people yeah, have, have had.
0: That's right. But, yeah. And that's also why I'm excited for the book to finally be out. Because yeah, then, you yeah. know, listen, not everyone's going to read a scholarly text, right, on the theory yeah. of racistness. But uh, it is going to, to to give people some keen insight into what I'm saying yeah. and what I'm not saying.
1: And I, so do you think you're do you think you're going to try and write something for a more popular audience at some point? Or is that, does that depend on how people understand what your academic work is?
0: Oh, it definitely doesn't depend on anyone understanding, <laughs> because you know this is my life's work and my life's purpose is to do this work and to advance my theory, and I'm writing a book for the general public, which is going to be. Um, Along the lines of, you know, when I say general public, like a lot of people read how to be an anti-racist, right? Or how to be anti-racist. Um, so I'm trying to go with that tone and yeah. and bring it down and show the the applicability and the practicality of it. Nice. Yeah. So to say the least, I'm going at this from all angles. I'm doing conferences. I'm organizing conferences with a lot of people. Uh, traveling to do those conferences and uh, people gonna hear about the theory of racistness one way or another. And I think it's only going to help people really grapple with it and understand. And there are still going to be people who misunderstand, but that's okay. You know, that's okay. I don't need every single person to actually, you know, just like that, get it. And I definitely don't expect every person to get it right away. Because yeah. I didn't even get it right away. You know, I resisted my own ideas for a couple of years at least. So,
1: um, yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier about kind of, um, you know, bringing it into kind of more popular context and uh, bringing it into like the tone of, of let's say, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, I feel like that's kind of what we're going to be doing today a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um Because, you know, I, I, I've kind of been thinking, well, so I've had very personal reasons to think about kind of my relationship with the idea of race and where I think its limits are and where I think, what I think its uses are, if there are any uses for it and stuff. And, and I've been thinking about how, how personal to be, but I feel like I've I've reached the conclusion that I have to be somewhat personal about, uh, about this, because I think, you know, so I'll just say that one of the reasons I've been thinking about these ideas is because for the past two years, um, my family's been fostering a daughter that's racialized very differently than, than I guess, my biological family, so to speak. Although I even hate saying that, my biological family. Um, she is She will definitely be racialized as black in the world, and we are definitely racialized as white in the world. And by the time people see this, we will likely have adopted her. It's in the very final stages right now. Um, basically, everyone signed everything that needs to be signed. Everyone had due process. So the birth family obviously had due process. Uh, the adoption committee has said that that we should be able to um, adopt her. So all that's cleared. Everything is cleared except for the very final bits. Um, but but it does sort of mean that, that you know – I I am kind of rethinking and and thinking hard about how discourse around race and the idea of race and racism has to take place in my family. And I think it's safe to say that it has to take place in a different way than it might take place for people in a family where there are no kind of, um, I guess, again, transracial uh, dynamics in the family, just to use that. That's the term that's usually used. Um, and then, of course, it dawned on me, I remembered that um, what you've spoke about your personal life, you are yourself an adoptee. Was it from the foster system or was it just, or you just were an adoptee from, it was early.
0: Yeah. By the time I was one, I was adopted.
1: Right. And it. I'm sorry, you said it wasn't through the foster system?
0: Well, it it must have been sure. because up until close to my first birthday yeah. i was with a different family i wasn't with my right. biological family
1: right okay okay yeah and 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 you were transracially adopted is that right
0: <laughs> I, I mean it's, it's, it's i'm sorry it's to use the term so it's foolish to me um, I, I know
1: i'm sorry to use the term so, but that's the term that's kind of in the common
0: so i'll give the the, the context right so my adoptive mother is an immigrant from panama so yep. she, by all accounts, would be considered Hispanic, ethnically and culturally, right, and right. linguistically. Um, my brother, also through, the, also through adoption, so not related by blood, but he was also adopted at the same time. And, and our birthdays were something like 45 days apart. Um, he was adopted. He's racialized as black.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: my adoptive father is racialized as white. So very much a, what people would consider brown household. Um, right. it grew up eating platinos and a lot of rice and beans. Um, grew up going to Panama and seeing my adoptive mother's side of the family. So that, that's my experience. And, yeah. um, and then I grew up in a very small town, South Guns Falls. And the town I lived in was primarily people racialized as white
1: primarily like what percentage would we put on that i
0: mean almost all it was almost like as of the i don't know last time i looked i think the 2000 census out of the 2200 people who lived there there were like 20 people who identified as something not white
1: right right so i mean to put that the includes, that would yeah, include yeah.
0: you know what two three three people from my own household of four so so it's like we safe to say we probably knew everyone in the in the community that was racialized as something else besides white
1: right i mean speaking of that um was it also fairly was there also some kind of residential segregation where the where the people who weren't racialized as white were they generally living in the same area because i know here in greenville north carolina so my immediate neighborhood is actually um, Surprisingly diverse in terms of what we would call ethnicity or race, but the city itself, number number one is is not terribly diverse, and number two, if you look at the residential patterns, like most cities in the U.S., both small and large, it's pretty segregated along the lines that we would call race.
0: Yeah, no, not um, in my hometown. Everyone was, was pretty, in the same place.
1: Yeah, everyone was. I grew in up in a,
0: a trailer park, which is pretty much. On the the border of the town, so that our yeah. address was something different. It was Fort Edward, um, but the school district I went to was South Glens Falls, and yeah. I mean everyone just like, lived together.
1: Yeah. So just to put a little bit of um, context on why I wanted to kind of bring this into our discussions, I mean, first of all, it obviously um, affects how I think of of this, like how you know how I should introduce to. Our, our, our son who's around six, um, you know, how I should introduce this idea because, you know, there is a difference that he notices um, between his sister and himself in terms of skin color and hair texture. So, like, wh- what does that mean? Because the, the conventional research used to, the, the conventional wisdom used to be that kids don't really see any sort of racialized differences until you teach it to them so the idea was you really shouldn't really bring it up at all and then the research got a little bit more complicated and says well kids actually do see differences like that and just like with things like sex and sexuality and stuff if if you don't say something they'll usually kind of figure out their own little explanations for it Um, and really the research wasn't that kids don't see differences in skin color and you know Physical features and things. It's more that kids get used to people who are like the people around them. So if you have kids who are, let's say, um, racialized as black, living in white areas, they'll be a lot more comfortable as they grow up around like those racialized white kids. And if they grow up in racialized black areas, they'll be more comfortable around uh, kids who are racialized black. And the new message seems to be, it's not that you really shouldn't say anything about it. It's that you should find you should bring it up the quote unquote right ways. (laughs) And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to bring it up in ways that I think are the most responsible ways. But it also brings me smack up against things that we've talked about before that I think you and I are very much in agreement on things like even using the, the word race feels kind of icky because when you have different people of different racializations in your household, and you say that your sister is of this race, you are of this race, like that is just inherently otherizing, I guess, to use a popular term. Like you can't make it not otherizing. So I try not to use that term. Um, I try to use other terms. I say something like people who look like our skin tone and people who look like your sister's skin tone. I, which even feels a little bit awkward for a six-year-old, but okay. Um, so, I don't know. I guess, like, one of the questions I have for you is, um, was it at all an issue for you as you grew up, the fact that your skin tone, I'm guessing, maybe hair texture, I don't know, was... Um, the fact that these were differences, and you lived in an area that was predominantly racialized white, when did when did you start noticing this, and did it ever become an issue for you? And if so, how?
0: Well, I can't say that i I can't tell of a time when I looked at my skin and looked at you know a classmate's mm-hmm. <laughs> skin complexion and was like, "Huh, there's some difference here." But- um, I can just tell you. The experiences with racism that i've that I've experienced that uh, made readily apparent to me the existence and persistence of racism, yeah. so when I was about uh I, w- I, w- I was about eight or nine years mm-hmm. old, and my adoptive mother abused me um she abused mm-hmm. me for the entire like my earliest memory of being in that household, I remember she, she always abused me. But when I was eight or nine, she started trying to manipulate the family dynamics because she didn't want my adoptive father's family to be close to me and my brother anymore because she wanted Mm. to keep the abuse secret. And I was at an age where I was just starting to be allowed to go off for the weekend. Like I had an aunt in Syracuse, she would pick me up and take me to her house for a sleepover it was awesome I remember one time making chocolate chip cookies and we made these little butterfly it was like some butterfly art kit that you had to it's like a fake stained glass and you had to put it in the oven and take it out and I just remember it was like literally one of the best times of my childhood and one of the only positive memories that I have of my childhood and Vicky Mm. decided that she was going to take that away so she told me that his family didn't like me because I was black and that her words. Right. And Mm. I was like, (laughs) up until that point, I don't recall a time where anyone was talking about me as being black or anything like that, or talking about anyone else as being white. And that memory, that memory obviously haunted me all the way up until this time, because it was number one, it was a complete lie it was not true. She was doing it because she didn't want us to, to see his family. And that was mm. one way that she tried to drive a wedge. And she was successful for a lo- until I, you know, got out of that house. I was no longer permitted to see the family. She caused mm. enough rift that we stopped going up to Plattsburgh for holidays and everything. And so, um, but at the time that I'm a child, I don't know that she's lying, right? I don't know that she's trying to manipulate the situation. So I internalized it as her telling me something is wrong with me. And then it's something about me that makes these people not like me. And uh, a, a couple of years later, maybe between 11 and 12, I remember my brother was going around the trailer park with another neighbor who happened to be a racialized black kid. and. Um, he came home screaming bloody murder and we were like, what happened? What happened? And he said that a uh, skinhead, an alleged skinhead anyway, uh, had shot at him and the, the, my classmate CJ and mm-hmm. um, chased them like through the 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 trailer park. Um, it turned out that it was true. I think it was... Um, within a week or so he was the kid was sent off to go live with his dad in Tennessee or something where his dad was, his parents were divorced. So he's basically exiled from the community, but it was clear to us. Like that's when I started learning about, you know, skinheads and stuff. Like that. Like, what but, even but- is that? Right. Um, and then from there, just, it just seemed to be every couple of years or so something would happen. I'm, sitting on the school bus and this new high schooler, I'm in middle school, this new high schooler, new to the community. She, she's, um, pops up on the bus. She's a new kid and she starts calling me pubic hair and taunting me. And every day she's torturing me in this way. Right. I mean, imagine I'm like 13 years old, something like that. And she's, Yelling that (laughs) publicly Like it was just really degrading And embarrassing Um, And add to that the fact that I'm experiencing The abuse at home So it was just, Mm. it was rough It was rough And it ended with her one day Grabbing my ponytail Assaulting me, punching my head several times And Mm. I had to get off the bus At the middle school She stayed on to go to the high school And she hocked a loogie out the window And it landed in my hair um, and, uh, that was the last time I saw her, you know, I, mm. I felt at the time that nobody did anything, right? I felt that I told the principal and stuff like that. And I felt at the time that nobody did anything. The principal was a racialized black man. Um, but apparently they did do something cause I, I didn't see her again. Um, mm. but obviously the experience traumatized me, um, was called the N word, you know, pretty consistently, um, and
1: by by other by my students, classmates, by, mm-hmm. okay.
0: Through this is through middle school and high school. I remember I was like sixteen. I come out of a class. I had a huge crush on wow. this boy, and and um and for some reason one day I just remember he started calling me. He he said some something like I think so highly of myself and call me the n-word and and other classmates people were having to hold him back like he was trying to fight me or something it was the strangest thing I've one of the strangest things I'd yeah. ever experienced I didn't understand it was unprovoked I literally just came out of my class and I probably was looking at him because I thought he was cute and I really liked him <laughs> um, and that happened um so pretty consistently the primary and really the only times that I heard about or was confronted with race or how I was racialized by other people was when I was experiencing explicit racism or when, you know, Vicky is making the accusation right. that somebody is racist towards me because of how I'm racialized. Um, right. And, right. and I can say as I've gotten older, right, I've lived in something like six or seven different states, I've traveled the world. And um, as an adult, I I can't say that I've experienced racism, certainly nothing to the extent that I experienced as a kid, all of the trauma seemed to happen, you know, before I'm 18, for the most part.
1: Right. Um, and, which, is when, which is when kids are, all, I mean, already the most kind of comparative and tribal and self-conscious.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. So
1: I wonder if it's a manifestation of that. Like, I, I wonder if it's a manifestation of like, kids are already looking for ways to like one-up each other. and And I wonder if race, the idea of race was a convenient way to do that.
0: Potentially. I mean, you know, I don't want to go f- too far down the rabbit hole as an adult. I've definitely experienced efforts to marginalize and exclude and all of that it which I think have um have foundations in in racism, but I view racism now as no. the the belief including the belief in race and the act and practice of racial racializing people, which then leads people to attempt to put uh, all of us in particular boxes. Like you can only think this way. If you look this way, you can only, you can only listen to this kind of music. If you look a certain way. Um, Well, at least
1: the negative would be, it's unusual for you to like that kind of music because you look another way.
0: Right. It's not even unusual. It's, it's inauthentic and not what you're supposed to do or be. So I've experienced that type of racism primarily as an adult and very consistently in every country, in every state um, that I've lived. (laughs) Um, Right. But as a child, it was definitely the more explicit, you know, N word assault and all of that stuff that I experienced. And, um, and to to say the least, it was, um, it was traumatizing.
1: Right. Right. I'm sure. Well, especially when you're a kid, because when you're a kid, you are like, that's when you are becoming more, self-conscious and, and, you know, kids want to like fit in. I just, something about kids that want to be in tribes and yeah. So, okay. So one of the things I've done over the past two years is I've read as many memoirs as I can. This this is what I do. I, I, I intellectual, I take an issue, I take a thing that I'm, and I start like finding like literature that I can read. And, um, so I've read like a lot of memoirs. I've looked at a lot of videos. Uh, there's a woman named Angela Tucker who, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was a, a transracial adoptee and she's kind of, um, she's, she's put out a lot of resources. There's a film about her. I forget the name. It's a documentary of her going to find her birth family as an adult. And then she's done a lot of interviews with like kids who've been in the quote-unquote transracial adoptee situation. Her videos have been really interesting and helpful. read some memoirs by some folks who were adopted in kind of transracial situations. And um, yeah, I mean, now that I think about it, a lot of those folks kind of have the most vivid memories of racism when they were kids and part of it seems to be because they didn't really have the the any sort of conceptual vocabulary to, to really understand kind of like well what what in the world is going on like why am i called this particular name when all of the other kids like they're not really called that name i'm called that name and it's like it's it's it seems to be very jarring for them partially because it it is like um like you know to try to make sense of why you were called like pubic hair has got to be a jarring experience. Like what, what is it about my hair specifically that I'm the target of that name? Well, and none of these other kids are the target of that name.
0: Well, I mean, I, I think it, it's, it is obvious even as a kid, why the trauma is happening. Like, I mean, I, it's obvious to me that my skin is Brown. It's obvious to me that my hair is very curly. Um, (laughs) <laughs> you know uh and even at an age where I don't have pubic hair you know listen right, you, you, right. You, i think i think it's off, it's actually obvious in the fact that for many kids we do have the experience of some family member like in the instance of Vicky telling me you know these people that don't like you or they hate you or they'll treat you differently because you're black right So I think I think how we how racism tends to work in this country is something along those lines where when you are a kid and you are racialized as black. um, More often than not, it is the case where you have a parent, a guardian who tells you what's what, you know, and usually.
1: Yeah, you almost. um, It seems to me like because I'm in that situation where I'm like, well, well, how to talk about this at all with, with my kids. And it's almost like, well, you don't want to create the difference you're trying to, 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 I guess, defend them against, right? You don't want to tell them they're different so that they go into the world kind of already primed for this, but but at the same time, you don't want to ignore what could happen.
0: Right. And I was going to say another important aspect of this though, is, is usually um, kids are told that kids are told that they're black right um but it's a it's it's a telling that's included with uh and as a source of pride it's not just oh yeah. you're black and so you you know you might experience some mistreatment or if you run into law enforcement you know the infamous talk um that African American families tend to have with their right. kids it's right. not just that it's not and that's i think hard for people to understand if they especially if they're not racialized black because simply because they don't experience it. Um, It's uh, all of the positive things too. It's like, you know, you're black and be proud, you know, Uh, it's never you're black and hang your head in shame or you're a victim or, you know, your life is going to be less than because you're black. It's you're black and there is a fierce sense of, pride and resistance and happiness in, and being black. Right. And, and the sort of understanding that um, whatever arrows are thrown your way, uh, because you're black, you know, you have the power of your ancestors and all the people who right, have faced right. adversity in the past. And so um, you have, you have what it takes. It's in your DNA. Right. Which
1: is, uh, which I mean, historically, is a really understandable corrective, right? Like, like this. I mean, this happened particularly with um, with Stokely Carmichael with the Black Panthers. You can understand historically that corrective, right? Because when 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 you as are told repeatedly these things make you ugly, these things make you lesser, one of the understandable responses is to say, "Let's see how we can flip that around," and say, "No, the things that they say make you ugly actually make you beautiful." And the things that make, they say make you lesser actually make you uh, – are actually a source of pride. Yeah. It's an understandable corrective, but you can also see how that corrective creates its own problems.
0: Well, I think that corrective um, has been a necessary part of survival for, for many people who are racialized as Black and Absolutely. a necessary um, part of how people have not just survived but have thrived. And although, you know, being where I am now in this journey, intellectually and spiritually and emotionally and all the things, I recognize the irony and the paradox of it, certainly. But, you know, I would be remiss to ignore the fact that people out of necessity um, and out of sincerity, too, and, 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 you know, recognizing, okay, I'm racialized in this particular way. I embrace my racialization because there's nothing wrong with being black. There's nothing negative about being black. Even if the person, you know, in the white house or whatever thinks that there is, there's nothing actually wrong with that. And that's, that's the, the, the fierceness and the, the, the self love that I'm going to pass on to um, future generations, as opposed to passing on self derision, you know? Um, So I think it's actually necessary Um, But as I said, it's also it's also in 2022 increasingly unfortunate that that's still the way that we're doing this thing called race. And it's still the way that we're trying to address racism because it all of it together, you know, it is not racialized Black people's fault that racism is what it is, that it has been what it has been. And especially considering racialized Black people only represent 13% roughly of the bigger population, um, it's not that 13 percent's responsibility. And I, I would say they don't even necessarily have the power um politically to statistically to to all of a sudden turn the entire United States around to stop racializing people, even though there have been consistent efforts for that exact outcome to occur um and so so in the face of that, then the best alternative is to make the best of something that was um initially intended to annihilate you you right. know i I think it's a necessity, and i I wish. And I want more people who are not racialized as black to hear that and to really like feel that in their hearts, because I see a lot of misunderstandings on social media about what it is to be black and proud, right? What it is to be blackity black, (laughs) what it is to do two things, stay black and die. Um, It is not what some people misinterpret that to be. And even if it is the thing that people misinterpret it to be sometimes, I would wish more people understood the history and the reason why we get down that path.
1: Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's Um, I mean, it, I should probably bring up, I mean, it, it relates to what you just said. I think like the asymmetry of um, people who are racialized white don't have to understand a lot of, of that and the strategy that kind of in some ways went on that led to the idea of black and proud, black love, things like that. But, like I'll say, for people who think that we're making a, a too big a deal out of this, because some people think like Kevin, you're overthinking this, you're overthinking this. I'll tell a story. you know, I've talked to a lot of social workers, I've talked to a lot of just kind of regular people in my life and 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 things to just get their take on it so when i when I say like you know, I'm really thinking about trying to be as intelligent as possible about how to navigate issues of race with with my kids and particularly my daughter who will probably become aware of it at some point. Um, I've talked to people who are, let's say racialized white or racialized something other than white. And I get two fairly different responses from the two groups. And it's really telling the people who are racialized white, mostly, mostly not always say you're making a big deal about something. I'm sure it'll be nothing. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be, you know, just whatever, overthink it, but it'll be fine. It won't be an issue. The people who aren't racialized white have a completely different response. They're like, good for you. Might be nothing, but who knows? It might be something. And the worst thing you can do is be unprepared. So good for you for thinking about this. And you think about the difference in those two responses, right? Like clearly there's one group – who has a very different perception of what this is going to be than another group does. And look, the people who aren't racialized white aren't saying, yeah, you better think about this because this is going to be a catastrophe for, you know, your daughter and it's going to be like race all the time. And it's, they're not saying that they're saying, yeah, you're right. It could, it could be nothing, but it really could be something. And the worst thing you can do is be unprepared for it. So, Like that is just a really interesting difference in and of itself. And it tells me that there's one group of people who maybe haven't really had to think about or think very differently about what the idea of race in America could mean for people. And there's another group of people who had to think about it from an entirely different end. So I'm going to side with the people who aren't racialized white in this matter because I think that that those are those are the people who are more likely to see, like, yeah, your daughter's perspective on this could it could become something large, it could become something big for her. It may not, but you probably want to be prepared. And I'll also say that one of the things I've noticed in the memoirs, and granted, the people who write memoirs about this are a small subset of the population of people who are quote unquote transracially adopted. So The story that they're telling is already pretty, you know, pre-selected. But one of the things they do mention is that the worst thing for them was often that they were adopted in situations where the parents exercise what I would call the wrong kind of colorblindness, which is the kind of colorblindness where you're so determined not to see any difference between you and the person that you've adopted, that whenever they do experience racism, you're so determined not to hear the R word that you're like, basically, the people who wrote the memoirs are like, they basically didn't see me at some point because I was telling them that this stuff was happening and they were like determined not to see it. So in o- in other words, they not only didn't see the thing that we call race, but as a byproduct, they were determined not to see any racism. And that obviously clearly affected the people who wrote those memoirs. Because that was the story that they often told.
0: Yeah, which is part evidence for my my argument um, that undergirds my theory of racistness, which is that more often than not, racism masquerades itself as race in American society. It also masquerades itself as um, race also gets conflated with culture and ethnicity and all of the things in really problematic ways. Um, which I think also connects with what we're talking about here. But it so far, what we've been talking about is really um, racism, the sort of father of race, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that people who refuse to recognize the practice of racialization, um, then often miss the fact that racism is a problem that people experience, you know, at different, at different junctures, at different levels and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that one, so, so I have triplets, you know, this, my triplets yeah, yeah, are two yeah. years old. Yeah. Um, they yeah. turn three August 2nd. And I think about often about, you know, how I'm going to do things different, how I'm going to bring my theory of racistness to fruition for my children. And part of it for me is what we've been talking about so far is really how this thing has usually been done or how it has looked or how it can look if we're not careful. (laughs) Um, And I think about how uh, you're hesitant to you know, even use the the word "race," right when you're talking with your son, uh, because there is no way to talk about race that doesn't essentialize human beings and um, divide them <laughs> into separate races of humans
1: um it's in the word it's in the word itself, race, race, race of what race of people,
0: yes so so and that's part of the the tenuousness of the whole enterprise um and i I should say there is no way to talk about it or there was no way to talk about it until the theory of racistness comes along Mm. and voila now we have a way to talk about it but one of the things that i imagine happening with my children is there's going to be there are going to be moments where they come home from school and they um and they ask about their skin color when compared to their classmates, right? Um, and I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, your skin color, you're black. Because <laughs> nobody's black and nobody's white. Um, I'll say, yeah, your skin color is brown. <laughs> I'm not going to apply the the race language to them. I'm not going to encourage my kids to internalize that pernicious thing that is meant to otherize, as you said to to other um yeah. to other them from other people and one way that we can help kids understand the difference between why their skin color is what it is or why their hair texture is what it is i mean it's something called human migration Right. Geneticists talk about this all the time. <laughs> yeah. We act in America. We act like it's a, such a hard concept. But how yeah. do we explain yeah. the differences with how people look? You know, if we're if we're trying to eliminate our belief in race, well, easy. We recognize that race is not skin color and it's not hair texture and it's not ancestry, that those things are other explainable, right. th- you know, phenomena such as ethnicity. Um and and have nothing to do with race, even though racism makes us believe that that's what it is, right? Because if we continue to believe that's what it is, then we uphold the status quo of racism. So how do we get outside of that? Well, we stop using the language and applying it to ourselves and especially our young people. And when, if, if, if they get to an age where, um, let's say, or my children, one of them gets called the N-word right it will impact them infinitely differently if you have not taught them to internalize the fact that somebody else's racist behavior is because of how they look it's because of them that how they look is the cause for somebody calling them the n-word or somebody chasing them around and shooting a gun at them like like let's normalize not making the victims of certain situations and um uh bullying and ways of being violent and stuff let's not normalize those victims being the cause for it just just yeah, another yeah, analogy yeah. is like when a woman gets sexually assaulted or 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 raped and people try to blame her like well, what was she wearing right you know she right. shouldn't have been dressed well, so provocative it's
1: because you're female it's because you're female <laughs> right, right? It,
0: it, no, it's, it's like it's it's so pernicious and i wish more people would see that about racism and its creation of race too. And if we can tease out that, that interconnection between racism masquerading as race, then we would say unequivocally, okay, we need to stop passing this on to our young people. And it's yeah. not going to be a hard concept for them to understand because um I think it's actually a harder concept for them to understand race because it flies in the face often of what reality is for most people.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I I think by the time people see this, there's an article that I just uh, wrote for electric Agora that's going to come out, which is me trying to think about why race is such a clunky concept. Cause I'm trying to explain it. Like I'm trying to think in my head, like how to explain this to, to my kids and, like it's just a clunky concept. And one of the things you touched on was um, I say that there's four reasons, there's four S's why, w- that makes race a clunky concept. Number one, it's slippery. We can mean different things by it. Someone might mean culture. Someone else might mean ancestry. Even in the same conversation, people can slip meanings. Once you refer to it as culture, another like same person could refer to it as ancestry. Another uh, S is that it's um, It's sloppy. So anything you mean by it, you can think of counterexamples within two minutes that just disprove that that version. Like, okay, it's ancestry. So this person comes from Africa. Well, my college roommate came from Africa, and his skin is pretty light. So, like, is is he black? No, we wouldn't say he's black. Well, why? If it's ancestry, um, some people might think it's culture. It's, but that's slippery because there are a lot of people who. You know, People wouldn't say Clarence Thomas is culturally black, but they would say he's ancestrally black. So what does that mean? But the other reason that you mentioned is I I say race is a subterfuge. Like when we talk about race, we're usually talking about something that's not race that we package into race. Like the example I use in the paper is like when I'm talking about, you know, my wife and I have had to ask a lot of people and ask for advice and look for tutorials and things on how to take care of our daughter's hair because her hair is very different in texture and tone than our hair. Um, But whenever we do keyword searches online, we always have to look for like, you know, black kids hair or whatever, but we're not talking about, it It doesn't have to do with race. It has to do with the texture and tone of her hair. So why aren't we talking about that rather than race? Why is race a proxy for hair? So it's usually the case that when we talk about race, We mean something other than race, but yet we use for historical reasons. We package it into this term that can't, I'm just convinced as you are, I think that it's not up to the job. If we mean this other thing, why don't we say this other thing? (laughs) Why are we using this clunky amorphous term that used to mean some essence, but now doesn't? Why are we using this term? Um, So yeah, I'm as convinced as you are, but, the, the, the term doesn't do the job, but the, the problem then is that, okay, but our kids are going to go out into a world where even if we don't want to use the term, other people are now are using the term. And they at least have to understand why other people are using this term.
0: Right. And so we teach them I'm, that. I'm,
1: we teach right, them And I that. guess I'm going to do it in a way of like, you know, these other people believe in this thing that's called race. It's not a really, it's not a really great thing to believe in, but these other people believe in it. So you might have to like talk in those terms, but you don't have to believe what those terms mean. I don't know. Why do
0: they have to? Okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right. So one important aspect of this is, is getting at part of what you just said, which is that where people are racialized in two ways. Society does it to us and we do it to ourselves. Why is it that just because society chooses to do something to us and tries to Mm. bring us into the fishbowl out of the ocean that we we just throw up our hands any other time we refuse to wear masks we refuse to comply with the vaccine mandate, you know, we like we refuse to be locked down, we refuse to 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 teach CRT, we were, you know, we we find all kinds of other things to refuse we refuse to ignore racism. We find all these things to refuse, but oh, you know, they do it to me, so I have to participate. No, like, what planet are we living on where I don't have the individual agency to make a decision for myself just to recognize the fact that, okay, the world sees me as a black person. Great. I'm not black. I am racist. I am outside of the confines that racism creates for all of us. And I rebuke the idea that any person, any other person outside of me has the authority or the say so to tell me that I'm wrong or, uh, uh, you know, or to tell me that I am the thing that I'm saying that I'm not. Society does it to me. I don't have to participate And my children. I hope they'll learn from me because I'm going to teach them the alternative philosophies of race that help them see themselves outside the box of racism always, which is the only way or the primary way that we can actually help people stop internalizing the problem of racism or and help them stop internalizing racist ideas. So when one of my sons comes home and they have some kind of... Um, experience or let's say um, during that week in history in their history class the unit is on you know American slavery or something you know what, whatever because I, I do have memories of that unit in elementary school mm-hmm. um, it, it, whatever right. the scenario is then we have a, a really a simple conversation with our with our children about how you know in American society racism, created this illusion and belief of race that there was more than one human race of people and the language associated with that belief include the words black and white and people will look at you and they will racialize you as a black person right but helping them see that society is doing the thing we're analyzing and acknowledging the problem and the history and the The today ness of racism without continuing to uphold it. And so, you know, now people are increasingly, you know, Sky or JoJo or Tati, whoever is coming to the table. Now people increasingly are recognizing the error and continuing to uphold this belief in race and not everyone is there yet. So there are still going to be a lot of people in your lifetime who are going to apply the, this language to you, but you have a choice and you have the power and the authority to say for yourself, how you want to see yourself and how you want to identify. Because at the end of the day, I would want my children to recognize that they do have a choice and I would sincerely hope that they choose to free themselves from the strictness of racism, but it's not going to be a, I'm this because my mommy told me that this is what it is. I am going to present it to them as a choice, but I think that they will feel compelled to choose to be free from racism. Right. And in doing it that way, anyone can call them the N word. Anyone can call them anything. And, it's not going to feel good. I'm not going to say they're going to celebrate or anything like that. It's not going to feel good, but it's not going to affect them in the same detrimental ways that it affects basically all of the rest of us because of how we've been taught race. um, And by extension, how we've been taught to uphold racism, because they're not going to see themselves in that word. They're going to recognize that there's a history that's attached to that word. And they're going to uh, grapple with and try to reconcile and understand why it's being uh, thrown at them, but they are not going to see themselves as a cause for that thing. And yeah, I, that yeah, is yeah. is freedom. That is liberation. And who yeah. cares if, if you can free yourself from seeing yourself in that thing, if you can free yourself from the detrimental impact of racism in that kind of context, that then who cares if society racializes you as black? Like you, yeah. you're free revolution starts with the individual.
1: Yeah. I mean, my, my, my concern is all is, is I'm, um, I mean, I'm surely going to do something very much like that. I, I believe that we're living in a postmodern world where the very idea of any sort of pure cultures are just, it's are so untenable at this point. Like people want to talk about um different cultures as if they're these discrete packets and, and they're, they're not, I mean, you know, we, we live in the age where we had to, had that lovely debate about whether Lil Nas X's Old Town Road was a country song. (laughs) And and look where, look where that got us, Uh, um, you know? uh, But, you know, my fear is that of course, you know, people are still going to at some points try to inadvertently or advertently kind of limit what uh, especially our daughter is going to be able to do. Like, you know, it, it was a common trope in these memoirs that like, One of the more traumatic instances for these kids, especially the kids who were racialized as black and lived in very white families and environments, is that when they would have their first kind of experience um, of being like among mostly racialized black kids um, was this dawning on them that, that they were more different than those kids than they wanted to be. And the kids would often kind of tease them for it. So like, they're not just getting it from the racialized white kids who are often holding them at a little bit of a distance, uh, but they're getting it from the racialized black kids who are like, you know, you're not doing things the way we're used to seeing them done by people who look like us. But you know, (laughs) so the story of like, you know, too white for the black kids, too black for the white kids. So I'm always concerned about that. And I always tell my students, you know, one of the things that one of the privileges i i do believe i have because of my skin tone is that you know books like invisible man by ralph ellison can't be written about me because no one doesn't no one limits my potential by looking at me and saying oh right you should be doing those things or very few people i'm in very few situations where where that happens but i've i've heard a lot of of racialized black people say in very in different communities, there are situations where people have said, I have a student right now who said, you know, I, I was in school and I loved history books. And I heard from my black peers all the time. that That's, that's a white thing. Why are you doing that? And she's like, what are you, what are you talking about? That's a white thing. Can't read books.
0: But the, that idea to me is um... – archaic is the word that's coming to mind so i'll just go with it <laughs> we'll see Yeah, no, if, we'll th- see th- it i think
1: it's makes. an appropriate word that right?
0: idea to me is archaic because it suggests that most or even the majority of people who are racialized as black in this country have that certain way of thinking or have have a shared culture and i would argue that um there's evidence to the, to the to the contrary because the i the something about what what was expressed which yes i've i've heard consistently throughout my lifetime and i see it in my studies has, has,
1: it, has it ever been directed at you by the way have you ever had those limitations directed at you
0: let me let me finish uh my thoughts yeah. just because i don't want to forget yeah. Yeah. and then i'll come yeah. back to that so the what's underneath that idea is that there is one way to be black, right? There's a primary way to be a black person um, in America. And there has never been one way to be black in America. And what also is underneath that idea is that the people who get adopted into families of racialized white people, and if they're racialized differently that then when they, they, they meet or in a primarily racialized black space, then there's this jarring, you know, of cultures and difference, right. Which it still suggests that racialized white people are the people who speak a certain way and participate in culture in a certain way that is different from racialized black people. And what's underneath that is racialized white people are smarter and more educated because they're literate and they speak a certain way and racialized black people aren't and racialized black people don't value and privilege and, and elevate, um, education and literacy and, um, and all of the things and and that, that form of success. And I find it to be a very pernicious idea primarily because it flies in the face of, um, Everything I know, like I know people believe that and I know that that there are there are instances where people will experience that. The problem for me comes from the translation of those experiences into, oh, there's something different about black culture that I don't fit into because I grew up with white people. (laughs) Right. And it's the it's the racializing culture that comes. And I think you would primarily find in the lower social in this lower economic status um, communities of America, where people who are racialized in all kinds of ways, even if it's a predominantly racialized Black space, um, are participating in culture in similar ways and have similar beliefs as it pertains to, you know, reading isn't cool and that, and that kind of thing. And that's not right. a Black thing. How do I know? Because the numbers for the number of people who are racialized as black who live below the poverty line in 2020 during the start of the pandemic was something like 19.5%. You cannot tell me that the majority of people who are racialized as black speak this, you know, vernacular, Mm. this dialect, this Mm. traditionally called African-American vernacular English um, and don't also speak standard English and don't value Um, education all the things and if you look at the the numbers for you know uh, number of uh, percentage of people with bachelor's degrees by broken down by race I was just Mm -hmm. accidentally looking at this the other day it's like it's it's all pretty measurable and comparable and so and you don't get a bachelor's degree without being able to at least do what people call code switching so you cannot it's like this this persistent idea that it's a black thing um yeah. is is part of the problem and so with all due respect to the people who write memoirs and and help uphold this racist idea of of racialized black people um i find it to be flying yeah. in the face of reality and also something we said before we we started recording um mm. is that it is this act of racializing culture that is part of the problem of racism. And it's part of the problem of why people who racialize themselves and cannot and do not see themselves outside of the the, the ideology of race, uh, it's why they end up being convinced that they aren't enough, that they aren't Black enough too. Because it's one thing right. for somebody else to say you're not Black enough, and it's another thing for you to believe that and then feel some type of hard feelings about that. And then look yeah. at your your parents and say, oh, you let me down because you didn't let me into black culture, which by their own estimation is apparently people who are illiterate, who prefer not having particular types of knowledge than having knowledge and all this other stuff. So why would you even want to be part of that culture anyway would be my question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it It's all this like pernicious cycle and it flies in the face of reality because pe- even people who are not adopted into the- that kind of family, sure. you know, the everyday racialized black family, where the parents are both college educated, the kids yeah. encouraged to go to college and stuff, they still get that criticism that they're not black enough in some spaces, right? That they're trying to talk white. That's the idea, right? And so and that literally has nothing to do with the fact of who they grew up with and how those people are racialized. So it's our own racism that would have us continue to believe that to want to be white or to be white or to talk white is to be educated in particular formal ways. And how pernicious is that? Because what is it saying about what it is to be racialized as black? And that's part of my evidence for racism hiding its face as race and we keep we keep falling for it we keep we keep buying it we keep you know insisting no there's a division between racialized black people and racialized white people in america a country that is arguably a conglomerate of all different type types of cultures uh, creating its own ethnicity and its own culture its own nation that all of us participate in that culture and where the culture is different is largely based off of region and economic class. That's it, not race. It has nothing to do with race. So there's a lot of miseducation and a lot of ways in which we need to educate people on the differences, as you say, that instead of packaging everything under race, you know, thus upholding the idea and our belief in race, which upholds racism, we need to help people get in more apt language, more precise language that matches the reality that helps us get outside of this thing called racism. Because if you can't tell by my tenor, I'm over it. Like I am completely Ish. over the misconceptions that people have about this thing that, that only hurts people. It hurts all of us.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things that I kind of um got in the memoir there's like there's one particular memoir that's actually called Raceless. I forget the author's name. It's Georgina Lawson, I want to say. I, I I forget the last name. Um and she is uh she was born into I guess kind of a quote-unquote multiracial British family and she at some point started feeling like she was kind of disconnected from I think what she ends up calling like her roots and stuff, and I'm like, "Wow, you're doing it to yourself! Like, you're doing this to yourself! Like, and I, I don't know, I, I, what I want for both of my children is really the same, and what I want them to do is be able to fashion their own identities in this very like polyglot culture. Like, it's not that." I'm sure a few people are going to listen to what I'm saying and what you're saying and saying, oh, great. What you want is your kids to be functionally white. I'm like, no. What I want is for my kids to realize, like in the vein of someone like Albert Murray and the book Omni-Americans or Paul Gilroy in his book Against Race, that we live in this polyglot culture. And if you don't see the quote unquote black contributions and the quote unquote white contributions and the quote unquote Jewish contributions and all of these contributions to your life, you're not looking hard enough. All of it contributes to you and you contribute to it. And like you don't have to see any sort of division there anymore because it's all sort of a mishmash. And especially like now that the internet exists, you can't contain culture into discrete packets. It's if it was untenable in 1980, it's untenable in 2022. Times exponential. It's um, like I said. I mean, I don't want to put too much gloss on it, but we live in an age where, you know, a few years ago we had to decide if a country trap song written by a a, a gay racialized black rapper counted as a country song. In in 1980, that scenario would have seemed absurd, but we had that discussion. And I hope we're all culturally learning the lesson of it, which is that you can't pack it this stuff anymore like there is a genre of music called country trap music we're past it get over it <laughs> it's these these things have merged together or like what the the netflix um series high on the hog i don't know if you you watched that but it was a fascinating journey of the contributions of the african diaspora to everyday american food like if you eat macaroni and cheese you are eating something that was kind of the brainchild of a slave. And if you don't take that to heart and take that seriously when you're watching all the racialized white kids eat mac and cheese like my son does on a regular basis, then you're missing something fantastically beautiful, which is that we are hopefully to a point where all of this stuff is so infused that, yeah, I mean, talking about a separation – between black and white, I mean, maybe we do it for historical reasons, but maybe that's what we should treat it as, is a bad historical metaphor. This is a historical metaphor that has a historical meaning, but it's a bad metaphor. And maybe we can start realizing how bad the metaphor is.
0: Yeah. So So while you you were talking- I have.
1: Um, a oh my gosh! I was just reading. I was just rereading Gilroy.
0: I keep it right above my on the shelf, right above my. Desk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So I love that you. I mean, that book it.
1: was written in the yeah. like 1990s. Yeah, he he sounds like a conservative today, it, but he was on the vanguard in the 1990s of cultural studies. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. No, I think that um, that people. You know, and listen, this is our school system failing us uh, systems filling us. this is you know media failing us um and then we just at some point we have to take responsibility and we recognize that at some point we um fail ourselves right <laughs> when when we're children and what we're taught growing up, we don't have too much control over, but at some point we become adults and and we come into our own and we we can choose to continue to do the thing to ourselves and the the memory talking about raceless um yeah it's it's an unfortunate example of somebody yes do, you know causing herself heartache in some ways because of how she's taught right um and and part of the heartache and part of what she's perpetuating is the conflation of racelessness with whiteness which is so problematic yeah, yeah. i cannot even begin to explain why that's problematic. And and I recognize um, historically how this conflation has continued um, to persist and how it was, how it was really started and how um, even Langston Hughes fell, fell into this quagmire of translating the absence of race, which we could dub racelessness um, with whiteness. And, To the point where when he writes in the Negro artist and racial mountain and he's uh, lambasting County Colin, even though he doesn't name Colin, you know, a poet told me recently that he wants to be a poet, not a Negro poet. And what I translated that into is he wants to be a white poet, which I translate into he wants to be white. And I'm like, no, sir, the absence (laughs) of race. Right. And and I think you and I have touched on this with, with the word American where everyone yeah. else has to get uh, hyphenated. You have to explain exactly what type of American you're talking right. about because American without the race signifier is perceived to be white. And I'm like, right. this is all right. part of the same problem. This conflating of whiteness with racistness, which also means that whiteness gets gets packaged with the ability to be free from racism, which is why you have some people mm-hmm. believing mm-hmm. that white people can't experience racism, right? And so- it's this um, cyclical thing that, that is all interconnected. And so long as we continue to lock up liberation from racism with whiteness or people who are racialized as white, then we will continue to reap what we sow. And similarly, if we continue to racialize culture, then we do continue to miss the entire point and to insist on yeah. a separate and unequal um, reality. That we say we don't want, that we say we dislike, that we say is in some ways inevitable, but we, well, we have a choice. We have a choice and we can choose to make the future into um, into a way that is better for all of us so that we can stop passing on unnecessary and embracing unnecessary heartache that that at the end of the day, we have a choice to to... Um, do differently and to stop yeah. passing this on to our kids because that's the worst part about all of this.
1: I do this so I for know, my kids uh, and yours. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm, I, I do it for my kids as well. Um, yeah. I, I, I know we're coming up on a, a deadline, so I'll have to go soon, but um, one, one more thing I did want to mention because um, it's just happened about a week and a half ago unexpectedly is my six-year-old and I had a really interesting conversation about, um, Racialization that happened almost impromptu. And I'll just run it by you just to see, get your thoughts on it, because I, I think I did an okay job and I didn't even mention race in it, but it was definitely about racialization. So I got home from work. I changed into kind of, you know, leisure clothes and I had a shirt on with Ida B. Wells on the shirt and the famous quote about the way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth on them. So my son is is starting to read and he's reading everything he can find. So he reads my shirt. He starts reading the quote. He's like, Daddy, what does that mean? So I tell him what it means. Um, and he's like, Well, who who's who's that? And I said, It's Ida B. Wells. So we got into a discussion about Ida B. Wells, and you know, she saw really bad things happening, the people with with darker skin colors, the skin color of your sister. This was you know, this was a hundred years ago, and so really bad things, and she wrote about it because she didn't see people taking it seriously. And she wrote about it until people did take it seriously. And and he's like, he was obsessed with Ida B. Wells for like a day. We watched some YouTube videos and stuff like that. Anyway, so uh, a few days later, we got um, a book that I ordered for him and his sister because he's getting the age where he can probably read this book. Um, the book is Born on the Water, Nicole Hannah-Jones and co-authors because I feel I feel like like he needs to kind of see what the history of this is and of course his sister's going to see what the history of this is and he sees the book and he says Born on the Water Daddy what's this book so I said oh it's it's a book called Born on the Water and he's like oh you know what's it about and I said well it's about how people with the skin color that your sister has came to our came to the United States um, cause, cause people with our skin color came from a, a place called Europe and people with her skin color came from a place called Africa. Um, but we came in really different ways. Do you want to read the book? And he, he didn't want to read it, but he wanted to look through the pictures. It's so like, yeah, cool. Let's look through the pictures. And I tried to explain the book through the pictures. So he gets to the, the picture where like the, 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 uh, people who are in Africa are kind of laughing and smiling cause they're in their countries and I was like, those people look happy, right? I was like, yeah. It's was like, well, because they're with their families and their friends and and they're in their place where they know and all this stuff. And then they get to the picture with people who look scared with the chains around their necks and arms and they're on a slave ship. And I said, well, what do those people look like to you? What do they look like they're feeling? And he said, they look kind of like scared. Are they scared? I was like, yeah, they're scared. Do you want to know why they're scared? Because people who look, who were from Europe took them and like forced them to go on these ships to america and he's like oh wow why did they do that it's like well because they they thought that they could own those people because they they wanted people to do their work for them and and then so we get to the next page which is a girl on a plantation working the fields looking as sad as you would expect a girl in that position would look it's like wow she looks sad so so we and i'm kind of tearing up like telling this story because it's a it's a brutal story but i wanted him to hear it as like she has to work on someone's field and she doesn't want to work on the field she wants to play with her friends and go to school and do all the stuff that kids do but she has to work on this field because people thought they owned her and then we got into a discussion about like if your sister had been if the, if we were at the time where this book was was written about we wouldn't be able to have your sister in our family And he's like, We wouldn't? It's like, no, because people thought that that people who look like your sister were like they could own them. But we can have your sister in the family now because we realize that like she's a person, like every person, and like we can have her as a sister. And she's not owned and, and she's not but I said, you know, but some people still today kind of think that people who look like your sister aren't as good a people. But that's not true, is it? And he's like, oh, Nidra's great. Like, we love her and she's so fun and she's so happy. And like, yeah. So, like, that's kind of where we ended it. But I feel like I did it all without really mentioning, like, racialization, so to speak. I didn't say she's – these people are a different kind of people. And I didn't say they were enslaved because they're black as if it's some causal property that, like – I felt like it was a really interesting conversation and I'm like, I wonder what he got out of it. I wonder if he even like is, is going to remember this conversation.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, um, a really sweet story. Um, I haven't seen that book. I know of it. Of course I haven't seen it. I mean, I haven't bought it or anything.
1: It's a, it's a beautiful book. Um it really is it's it's uh the the right- the writing in the book is is just pure poetry mm. um and it's funny because people of a conservative ilk of which I have several friends and family are always like you know, um why are we telling this story like we're setting up this opposition between like black people and white people when we tell the story this way because it sets up this opposition. I'm like, well, first of all there was an opposition. Like, let's get really clear about that. There was an opposition. You can't tell the story of our history without there having been an opposition. (laughs) And second of all, um, I don't see it as an opposition, I guess, because I don't feel like I play for team white. And I feel like those conservative people really do. They're revealing that they, I play for team white, that's team black, keep them over there and let's not talk about this. like, But you can talk about it in a way that doesn't say, and you son are guilty because you play for team white and, or like you, or telling my daughter, and you are clearly an inferior sort of person because see how you came over to the country. Well, that's not you who came over to the country, first of all. And second of all, like it, it doesn't reflect on either of you, but this is where we come from.
0: Yeah. I don't, I personally don't think it's a a conservative issue. Um, I think that both sides of the political spectrum do the same thing, but just in different ways. And that's why you hear more and more left-leaning people um, speaking out against some of the practices and ways of doing things even now, um, because there's this sort of infantilization and, Um, coddling of people because of how those people are racialized, which I think um, is also part of racism and also helps continue the practice of racism. Um, But I would hope that, you know, if we increasingly raise our children differently and have conversations with, with them differently and draw some type of distinction between how things were and how things are and across their, you know, um, lifetimes they get to learn the, the nuance of, of human history and of American history and stuff, um, from outside of the confines of that history that, or that, that history would try to keep us shackled to or within, um, then I have hope for, for us and I have hope for our children. Um, And I, I'm happy to, to know you, Kevin, and be connected with you. And I just want to say congratulations again on the news. (laughs) I think that's so exciting. Um, Such a beautiful family. And, um, and I love that you are putting so much thought into this and hopefully we can continue the conversation.
1: Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, thanks for having it. And thanks for relaying your experience and your perspective on all this too. Thank you. Until next time. Until next time.